0: Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back, thanks for joining me. I'm Audrey Rindlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So excited to have you. Listening in on the podcast today, want to make sure you know that we'd like to grow this podcast. So if these have been helpful to you or informative, educational, please go ahead and subscribe and share these out, review them. And we'd love to have you join us in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we have an after show discussion, talk about the concepts that we go over in the podcast throughout the week. I just want to say before I get started on this podcast that because of the nature of what we're going to discuss, we're going to talk about um, some things concerning Oscar Wilde and his lifestyle that you may not want young ones to hear. I obviously will be very discreet and just mention uh, some things, but I think it's important for you to know and to have a whole picture in order to really understand the the concepts and principles that I'm going to present. So we're talking today about how uh, knowing the principles won't save you. And I, I want to talk to you about Oscar Wilde and some fascinating things about him and his life that teach us some really important things for our own lives. He was born in 1854 to a pretty wealthy Uh, family and a very well-known family, you could kind of say that his mom was kind of the female embodiment of what he became. He really idolized her and fashioned who he was largely around who she was. Her, uh, his father was always unfaithful, apparently, or, or often so. And the wife just kind of put up with it. He was an ophthalmologist. She was a renowned poet and journalist, and she was right in the thick of society and had lots of parties with famous people who Oscar Wilde met. And she allowed Oscar and her, his older brother into the parlor to watch the goings on. They couldn't speak, but they could listen. And she was a pretty opinionated, liberal, flamboyant um, kind of a woman when he was 10 years old he went to boarding school well 9 i guess to 10 went to boarding school and he took the first prize in classics and second prize in drawing and so he was really quite brilliant from the beginning and then he went on to the royal school scholar at trinity college and he earned the foundation scholarship which was the highest honor bestowed on an undergraduate and took the Berkeley Gold Medal for Greek and the Demiship Scholarship to Magdalen College, Oxford. <laughs> oh, so he was really a brilliant guy and uh, went on to Oxford, got there by the time he was about 20. And while he was there, there was a movement. Now, we get definitely more into this in level three of the Academy when we're working on like worldviews and and touching on some history, doing our love of humanity stuff, but the aesthetic movement is part of this bigger picture. In fact, I have an extensive lecture on Oscar Wilde's role historically on principles in the arts. That is one of the videos in level two, actually, I just remembered that. Um, but the aesthetic movement was art for art's sake. So really, simply put, There was a movement in England at the time, William Pater was a huge proponent of, it. it was at Oxford, and introduced Oscar Wilde to this movement, that art had no responsibility to teach anything moral. Art should be able to just be art. It should just be able to be beautiful. It didn't need to teach anything. It had no obligation to be a positive impact on society. Well, Oscar Wilde loved that, but he didn't just embrace it in terms of the arts. He embraced it as an entire worldview. It really largely matched kind of what went on at his house. It was a pretty immoral environment in his home as a child. And so he really embraces this movement. And of course, he's quite brilliant. And so he wins the Newtigate Prize. And... um graduates at 25. So then he goes to London and he becomes this dandy. Now he was, he was really tall. His mom was six feet tall and he was like six two or something, uh, quite broad and large and had manly that they said, especially in his younger years, had quite a, uh, masculine presence. And he became more, uh, I guess you would say, kind of more effeminate, kind of more um, flamboyant, lacy, more uh, and more expensive clothing and wanted to surround himself with only beautiful things. And he would say all the time that um, we all needed to just surround ourselves with beauty and that would make us beautiful. He made a, there's a really famous comment that he made. I can't, I think it seems like it was when he was at Oxford. He bought some blue china and he made a comment to somebody that he'd been trying for a while to live up to his blue china. And so beauty, this, this, if you know a little bit of history, this of course is Epicureanism from ancient Greece. It's, you know, the Stoics and the Epicurists, that theme never goes away. And society kind of, the pendulum swings back and forth. So he's part of this whole, he's caught up in this whole movement. And there's a play that's written and makes it to America. Oh, it's because, (laughs) it's because Gilbert and Sullivan wrote Patience. And Gilbert and Sullivan really, you know, if you've heard of Pirates of Penzance, that's them. And... It satirized the aesthetic movement, and it became really famous in America. And because he was such a famous scholar and had written things about uh, the aesthetic movement and and was a prized student of William Pater, he was invited to come to America and give some lectures on the aesthetic movement in correspondence with this play. Well... At first, he was kind of booed off the stage. He wasn't, (laughs) he was kind of dry and boring, but he put on the charm and learned to be a much better speaker and became very popular in America. Now he had always been very funny. And what I failed to mention was that he, he kind of just wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a celebrity. And when he went to London after college, he was able to pull that off. He already had, you know, he came from a family with some money and he had important connections. He visited Victor Hugo and other important people. And um, he he visited important people in the United States, too. But before he went to the U.S., he had become really famous in London because he was so funny and entertaining and different. There's all kinds of comments uh, that you can quotes from Oscar Wilde that you can read. But they really are just like the kinds of things he says in his play. If you've seen or read The Importance of Being Earnest, the flippancy in that play about traditional morality, about the unimportance of education, of self-improvement, of family, of morality, that was really the reality he tried to live. Uh, He does it in a funny way in that play, but he meant it in real life. (laughs) He really was going to try to live that out. We should live for pleasure was his motto. And he wanted to, you know, it, it was a way of drawing attention to himself, a way of being different, a way of standing out. And so he grew his hair long and he wore flamboyant clothing and he had outrageous ideas that he talked about at dinner parties and he was really, really funny. So he got a lot of attention and became really famous. And so then he goes to the United States and he gives these lectures and he's there for a year and now he has a bunch of money of his own and he comes back to, um, to England and a couple years later he marries Constance Lloyd. So clearly he's heterosexual. He's only ever loved women. He's only ever dated women all through his 20s. He marries a woman. He's very happy with her at least for the first few years, and they have two boys. And it's during this time that he writes his collection of fairy tales, uh, The Happy Prince and Other Tales. And he's this super attentive, loving father. He seems to really love his wife, he really loves his sons, he plays with them, they have a great home life. And after a few years, and again, Going back to his plays, if you remember, one of the common themes is his, in his plays is boredom. Everybody's always so bored, bored with everything, and he got bored. He loved his family, but he wasn't getting the attention he wanted to get. He was—he really craved uh, public approbation and wanted attention and wanted to make something of himself and prove himself. He had married a woman of means, and so they weren't suffering financially, but he wanted to distinguish himself. And so he took a job as an editor for a woman's magazine, and he started working with women that he knew in high society and getting them to write things for this magazine, and that's how he got more people to subscribe. And so it was really quite brilliant of him. So he got more experience writing and he already obviously was a brilliant writer. And in the meantime, he starts to explore homosexuality. And in the meantime, he writes the picture of Dorian Gray. Now, if you've not read it, I'm going to recommend you read it because I'm not gonna give you much of a book synopsis on it. I'm gonna read you a few selections from it as it touches upon his worldview of aestheticism. Because this whole idea that we ought to, that there's no principles, there's no laws, there's really actually no God, there's no law above our own whims and pleasures. We're here to enjoy ourselves and have a good time and have a good laugh. And, 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 and indulge in, in the sensual things of life. And so he explores that idea in the picture of Dorian Gray, what it's meant to be. The objective of this work is to be the supreme example of asceticism, justify the worldview and desires and show how to create art that is beautiful and valueless doesn't have any values, doesn't have any truths, doesn't teach anybody anything, doesn't elevate, doesn't try to make them be, quote, better. It's just simply beautiful. And at the beginning of his book, you can see that that's really the case because his preface is just um, like sentences. It's almost kind of poetic. And it's this string of things that basically his beliefs... The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. There's no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. That is all. Uh, And then all art is quite useless is his final sentence in his preface to the book. Now, of course, you can imagine this was an absolute scandal at the time, and many critics came down on it. But here is the great irony about this book, okay? So if you know anything about it, the basic plot is there's this great artist, and he paints Dorian Gray, who was supposed to be just this exquisitely handsome man who is just perfect in his his physique. And at the beginning of the book we meet Lord Henry, who basically sets out the tenets of aestheticism and talks to the artist and talks to Dorian Gray through a series of conversations about what the aesthetic ideal is and why you should live your life that way. Like, for example, at one point, um, one, one of the characters says, I had a strange feeling that fate had in store for me exquisite joys and exquisite sorrows. I grew a fate and tried to quit the room. It was not conscience that made me do so. It was a sort of cowardice. And so then Lord Henry goes on to say, conscience and cowardice are really the same things. And so this idea about, you, there's not really a conscience. If you, in fact, there's a, there's a statement that's made... Um, The only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it, resist it, and your soul grows sick. So, of course, the idea here, again, is we've got to experience everything. Pleasure is everything. We need to surround ourselves with beautiful things. We need to experience those beautiful things. He makes a comment that women represent the triumph of matter over mind, meaning that Women are just should be enjoyed for how they look and not for anything in their heads. Uh, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Now, I don't have time to get into it, but if you know much about Nietzsche and nihilism, in fact, uh, Oscar Wilde's first play subtitle was The Nihilists. It's that same vein, right? Like it's along those same ideas. This, of course, goes hand in hand with many of, you know, you um, know, anyway, Bernard Shaw and there's many authors at this time that are teaching these same kinds of things but Oscar Wilde wants to make a statement in the world about this movement he wants to put forward this worldview and that's what this book is supposed to do So Dorian Gray goes along and he makes worse and worse and worse choices and he's tempted and and he goes out into society and he it's it's a clean book in the sense that you know, it was written in the 1800s. And so he doesn't explicitly say much that Dorian Gray actually did, which is nice. You just get to imagine for yourself the kinds of things that he was doing based on where he was and the kind of people he was with. But the paradox in the book is that when he pulls the painting out, it grows ugly in proportion as his soul is stained. So every time he commits a sin, the painting grows more grotesque. And so even in the midst of saying there's no sin, you can't really do something wrong because there's really not a right, because it's really just all about pleasure and enjoying yourself. Oscar Wilde is paradoxically really making quite a moral statement that there are things that we do wrong and that they do stain our souls and that they do canker us. Now, at one point, Dorian Gray has a, uh, has has a kind of a, a turning point and he he wants to be good again he doesn't like the way that he feels he doesn't like the way that that his life is going he doesn't want the painting to show this stained soul and he's mistreated this woman and he realizes he needs to make it up to her and he needs to marry her and he he writes this passionate letter and he says um I know what conscience is to begin with. It is not what you told me it was. It is the divinest thing in us. Don't sneer at it, Harry, anymore. At least not before me. I want to be good. I am perfectly happy now. And so in his resolve to change himself and do what's right, then he experiences this this kind of uh, joy and happiness, and he wants to change himself, and then unfortunately he doesn't. He returns back to his old wrong behaviors, and, and, and so it goes to the end of the book. There's a, there's a part near the end of the book where um, Wilde has the narrator say this. He sought, which is talking about Dorian Gray, to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles and find in the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The other phrase is really fascinating, the, spiritualiza- the spiritualizing of the senses. And so whatever tantalizes the senses and causes us to give in to our senses is what is right. That is how right and wrong are now defined. He's going to create a new morality, just like Nietzsche wanted to, and it's going to be the Epicurean ideal. So he writes this book. Now, the irony here, of course, is obvious that he knows <laughs> deep down inside what's actually really right and true in fact there's several places in the book where he talks about doing your duty and 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 what you ought to be doing and knowing what you ought to be doing but giving into the sin and, and it's eventually to the demise of the of the main character. Well, what's fascinating about this whole thing is that then Oscar Wilde goes on to basically, be Dorian Gray. Now, obviously, he doesn't have a picture, but he's already begun to play around with homosexuality. And now he dives wholeheartedly into it. He meets Lord Alfred Douglas. He's like uh, over 15, 15, 16, 17 years younger than Oscar Wilde. He's an undergraduate at Oxford. And here's what's interesting. Lord Alfred Douglas has actually read... A picture of Dorian Gray from his own admittance at least 10 to 15 times. So he's ingested this aesthetic movement. It's become part of him as well. He wants to explore pleasures and other feelings and experiences. And at first, you know, Oscar Wilde's kind of hiding it. And then eventually he just completely abandons his family. He has these two beautiful boys that he's spent many years with in their younger years. And now by the time they're getting into, well, especially by the time his oldest is getting into his teenage years, he's really getting heavily into this and just not there for his kids at all. And he lives in hotels in London and he uses the the excuse with his wife that he has to write and he has to be undisturbed. So they rarely see him. In fact, he joked once when she came to him and was like, why don't you come home? Why don't you spend some time with us? And he says, oh, it's been so long since I was there, I couldn't remember where it was. And so the kind of flippancy that you see in his really funny plays where he makes fun of everything that's good and right in life is really kind of who he was. And that's, (laughs) those plays are an expression of who he was, unfortunately. Now, The situation gets worse because Lord Alfred Douglas wants to go further. Now, Oscar Wilde, of course, blames him and wants it to be Alfred's fault that he got into more and more serious trouble. Now, of course, homosexuality itself is illegal in London at this point, okay? But it gets much worse than that so now he's, he, you know, he's breaking the law, which today we wouldn't, you know, societally we say it's not breaking the law to be homosexual. I still believe it's morally not okay, but, um, he's gone even further than that. I mean, he's doing things that even by our standards today are really breaking the law, but nobody calls him out on it for a little while. And he even says himself that he just dove further in and that he just wanted more. And that, uh, It was insatiable. And so he's living out Dorian Gray. And so I just want to pause here for a moment and make the point of what the title of this podcast is all about. And that is that knowing the principles won't save you. Oscar Wilde, even though he wasn't raised in a home that taught him good values, he knew what conscience was. And he intentionally built a life around a different worldview. And even though he wrote this book showing the demise, calling it sin, talking about conscience. and exp- I mean, what's ironic to me is that if he was trying to show that the aesthetic life brought you what you wanted, why would he call it sin? Why would he talk about conscience? And why would he have his main character you know, have the consequences, have the natural consequences in the end. He knew where that life had to lead. He wrote about it and then he lived it. And of course he had the consequences personally, spiritually, societally for his bad behavior. Now, what's fascinating to me is there's, there are sins, there are wrong behaviors on all kinds of levels here. First of all he gets into homosexuality. He abandons his own family, has no contact almost with his wife and his own children, and he spends incredibly fast. I mean, he just spends everything that he makes. He's running on the creditor, on the credit of his friends borrowing money from people, and this is the high time. This is when the importance of being earnest and the other one about the a husband I can't remember what it's called. These were out, these were super popular. He was making all kinds of money. He basically is living almost no true principles. (laughs) Even though not, not 10, 15 years before, he was somewhat still kind of grounded. He was receiving the benefits and the blessings of the principles he was living. He was living much more within his means. He was working a much more normal job. He was paying attention to his wife and children. And and kind of had it together, and then he just kind of falls off the deep end. I mean, ironically, he writes a lot, and his plays are well-received because they're sarcastic and funny. And they're written for the elite who like having, you know, society being made fun of. That seems really fun. And so it doesn't matter what he actually knows It doesn't matter what his conscience tells him. It doesn't matter that he got it right in the picture of Dorian Gray. He got it wrong in his own life. He willfully abandoned all that was good and right and true in his personal life and embraced this completely selfish and self-indulgent behavior. He did whatever, literally whatever brought him pleasure. And a new, you know, kind of high and it all came crashing down. The first thing that happened was Lord Alfred's father was well off. He was a little mentally unstable, but he hated that his son was in a homosexual relationship with Oscar Wilde. And so he started, um, that eventually turned into a court case where Oscar Wilde was trying to sue Lord Alfred's father for libel and it turned on him. Because in the way that the um, court case was conducted, eventually they led Oscar Wilde down this path where he confessed some things that ended up being super detrimental. And then he was arrested and a new case was formed against him that eventually, you know, he, it was a hung jury in the first one. And then in the second one, he was convicted and sent to two years hard labor in prison for um, indecent behavior. So three months after he's in prison, his mom dies and he really, really, really suffers. He really loves her. He's in all kinds of sorrow and despair. He's angry. He cries every day. So while he's in prison, he's not supposed to be able to write anything, but eventually he's able to get some paper and a pen and he writes what's called De Profundis, It was published after he died. And it means out of the depths, the only thing that he could read in prison was the Bible. And so he spent a lot of time reading the Bible. De profundis is kind of along the same lines as Psalm 130. And it's really a fascinating little read because at first, you think he's ready to just completely own up and be a new person. And that's what you hope is happening. And that's the impression that he gives. In fact, here's a few of the things that he writes. He says that his mother and father had given him a name that was noble and honored. And he had disgraced it and drug it through the mire and made it a low word among low people. He goes on to say that terrible as it was what the world did to me, what I did to myself was far more terrible still. And then he goes on to say that he knew he was given everything, but I let he says, I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. I amused myself, a dandy, a man of fashion. I surrounded myself with the smaller natures and the meaner minds. I became the spendthrift of my own genius and to waste an eternal youth gave me a curious joy. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in the search for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. Desire at the end was a malady or a madness or both. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud on the housetop. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. There is only one thing for me now, absolute humility. And then he goes on. And he spends a lot of time talking about Christ. He's read um, the Gospels over and over again. In fact, he says, Of late I have been studying with diligence the four prose poems about Christ. At Christmas I managed to get a hold of a Greek testament and every morning after I would cleaned my cell and polished my tins I read a little of the Gospels. A dozen verses taken by chance anywhere. It is a delightful way of opening the day. Everyone, even in a turbulent, ill-disciplined life, should do the same. So you get this idea that he has reformed, that he's going to become a God-fearing person and that he loves Jesus and all this stuff. But in the end, he's like, I'm glad I lived the way I lived. I'm glad I lived for pleasure my only job right now is to make sure that I turn my experiences to a good end and that I learn by them and that I become a better man by them. And you know, he 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 spends a lot of time talking about Christ from a whole bunch of different angles and looking at his life and his character and his actions and all this kind of stuff and talking about how he's really just the perfect guy. But it's like that intellectual I did a podcast on the types of people in hell. And I talked about the great divorce and those that intellectualize everything and cannot find truth. And this is seems to be exactly what's going on with Oscar Oscar Wilde. He's so willful. He's so unwilling to be submissive to anything but his own desires. Now it's just all about sorrow and and he's the great romantic now in the great aesthetic because he's experiencing the other side of the coin. He had all the pleasure and now he has all the sorrow and despair. And it's all part of the same life and it's all part of his regressions. <laughs> like, what is the disconnect? And so in the end, he is released from prison and he has nothing and his wife says okay i will send you an allowance if you don't get back t- together with lord alfred and what do you think he does gets to get back together with lord alfred now only for a few months and then they part ways again and then within a couple years he's dead he goes by a pseudonym nobody wants to have really anything to do with him he can't make any money he he can't turn on the charm to get paid to do anything he has um, an operation on his ear and it turns into a cerebral meningitis, and so then he passes away. Ironically, he had toyed with Catholicism all his life and he converted the day of his death. He allowed the last rites to be uh, performed over him at the encouragement of Lord Alfred. And it's fascinating that his life turned into such an absolute ruin. You know, he, he says something in, um, this day profundus about his kids and, oh, they've taken my kids from me and I, I can't see them now and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, really? Because all those years you could have had close relationships with them. You didn't want to have anything to do with them because you were busy, you know, engaging in all this, all this bad stuff. And so it's like, you know, it's kind of like the cry of the damned, you know, you, he's, He seems to see clearly that he's got to take responsibility and he's got to own up and he's got to fashion and hew his own character, but he doesn't want to do it according to any laws outside himself. He doesn't want to submit to anything higher than himself. And, you know, what's fascinating is that Lord Alfred spent the rest of his life analyzing his own behavior and his own past and, um, And he gave a review, (laughs) this is so fascinating, he gave a review of the picture of Dorian Gray and I want to read to you what he said because it's so fascinating to look at these men's lives who were absolutely brilliant and had every opportunity to come to truth at any moment but were so unwilling to let go of all of their, all of the lies and all their wrong paradigms and to submit to anything else. He says now, anybody who, having read *Dorian Gray*, can honestly maintain that it is not one of the and and whom honest can honestly maintain that it is not one of the greatest moral books ever written, is an ass. So, here's two guys who are saying art's art for art's sake, and in fact, even in this last work of of Oscar Wilde's, he's still kind of sp- I mean, he just wants to sound smart, and he wants to sound like he has it all together and he has all the answers, and he's just spouting out all this stuff. And you're just like, really? Because it didn't work out really well for you. And both of you said, I mean, what was at the beginning of this book? What did Oscar Wilde say? Books are not moral. They're well-written or badly written. And who loved the aesthetic movement and was entrenched in it and who was encouraging Oscar Wilde to indulge in it, but Lord Alfred himself, who was now saying that Oscar Wilde wrote one of the greatest moral books ever written. He says, it is briefly... The Story of a Man Who Destroys His Own Conscience The visible symbol of that conscience takes the form of a picture, the presentiment of perfect youth and perfect beauty, which bears on its changing surface the burden of the sins of its prototype. It is one of the greatest and most terrible moral lessons that an unworthy world has had the privilege of receiving at the hands of a great writer. He goes on to say, he was so great an artist that in spite of himself, he was always on the side of the angels. We believe that the greatest art is always on the side of the angels. To doubt it would be to doubt the existence of God, which he and Oscar Wilde seem to have not believed in God. They seem to have not (laughs) as part of their reference point when they were out there just destroying lives at their whim. So we've gone a little long. I'm sorry I kept you a little longer. But this is such a profound lesson to us that we can have all the truth right at our fingertips. These men knew, I mean, why would they come out later, especially Lord Lord Alfred and say, you know, it's a great moral story all about conscience, except that we didn't want to obey our consciences at any point. (laughs) And so you know that these men knew better even in the moment when they said they didn't know better. And so many people today want to claim that they don't know better. They want to claim that their conscience isn't telling them what's true, that there's not this natural law out there, that they don't really know that they should do things differently. And yet they both lamented the life that they had led. They both had horrible consequences. Lord Alfred died bankrupt. And, and uh, it's just it's just so tragic. So even when... You know the principles, even when you understand that there's a conscience and you must obey it, if you choose not to, you will reap the whirlwind just like Oscar Wilde did. And that is a really profound life lesson for all of us to ponder that a great moral story was written by a man who claimed that there's not morality, which shows that even those who make every excuse in the book still know there's a right and a wrong. Thank you so much for joining me. Please go get your free copy of The Mission Driven Life at themissiondrivenmom.com. And make sure to subscribe, to write a review, and to share this out with anyone who who you think might benefit from it. And I will see you next time.